Welcome to the Ad Proficiency Podcast, presented by NerdJam.net. Whether you're a new player or veteran dungeon master, we're here to help you add depth to your game. Today on Ad Proficiency, we're continuing in part two of our Charisma Skills Deep Dive by taking a look at performance, discussing charisma overall, and going over some of our homebrew procedures. So let's move into performance. This one is surprisingly a bit of a beast. How would you describe performance? Performance is going to be grabbing people's attention, doing a specific task, which is why you have to pick a particular kind of performance to be good at whenever you take it, correct? At least that's how it used to be. Uh, not anymore. It just sort of generally applies to performances. The player's handbook description says this. Your performance check determines how well you can delight an audience with music, dance, acting, storytelling, or some other form of entertainment. And that's it. <laughs> so, so everyone's like, wow, this is like a useless bard skill. Why would I ever take this on my barbarian? Why would anyone other than a bard want this? That is the general line of thinking for performance. So let's squeeze as much juice out of this as we can. Delighting an audience, use of acting, and use of storytelling imply the following to me. We're able to use our charisma to capture and hold the attention of onlookers. We're able to make content seem interesting. We're able to employ acting skills to seem like other people. And we're able to use our verbal skills to evoke reactions from listeners. So with that, let's redefine performance before jumping into what makes it such an underrated scene and story skill. So we're going to say performance. Your performance skill determines how well you handle an audience, whether that entails drawing or directing attention, garnering interest, or evoking an emotional response from a subject. If you aren't addressing a large group, you might use this skill to seed rumors, perform acts of leadership, expand your reputation, or affect morale. Performance may also be used to employ acting skills and showcase singing, dance, storytelling, or some other form of artistic expression. So suddenly the skill seems a lot more useful. Why wouldn't performance skills play a huge role in communication? I really feel like they could have helped us out a little more on this one. Yeah. So let's go ahead and jump into combat. How do you use performance for combat? I would say you use performance in combat as a gladiator. You're basically trying to make your form of combat as flashy and attention-grabbing as possible. So that's what causes the coins to rain from the stands at the end of the match when you've spectacularly defeated your foe in one swift blow. Okay, I like that. So you're saying you can sort of like add flourishes and flavor to your combat to really make it look impressive. I've got that it's got several leadership applications, things like rallying creatures against fear or shock or overwhelming odds. If someone used a fear effect to scatter allies and a character that succeeded on their save used an action to rally the others and rolled well enough, I'd give those who failed their save advantage on their next save to sort of resist that fear and come back to their senses. I would also say this is very useful for giving orders across a battlefield, especially if it's particularly difficult to be seen or heard. Heard, performance can be used to really project your voice or supplement your orders with somatic gestures. This might also be useful if you're trying to give orders or get the attention of a group that is very far away, such as during a pincher attack or a flank. And then lastly, I'd say performing inspiring acts of leadership or affecting morale. These are kind of more utility, but we'll include them as leadership applications here. These are going to be things like speeches, which aim to inspire more so than intimidate or persuade, acts of grandeur or grace, or to get more oomph out of a situation you're already in. Like, say you're rescuing a baby Keebler elf from a burning tree. You just ask your DM if you can roll performance to emerge from those flames dramatically. So this 
this is kind of saying like supplementing our actions the way you talked about supplementing our combat. So you're saying performance would be those heroic flourishes that add that little bit of flair oh, yeah, to what like, you're doing. Like, like you, the hair swish as you're emerging from the flames, you know? <laughs> sparkling like, smile that you something like the crowd. that. Yeah, your perfectly white teeth just like sparkle for that instant. All silliness aside, I do think you can you can really use this to sort of like impose awe or just really like one of those picturesque scenes where people who are witnessing it are like it was like looking at a painting, you know, seeing this like epic moment and you're just like, holy crap. Like, something out of legend. Something out of, of legend. There was this moment where he just looked legendary doing this. That's the sort of like impact performance can potentially have if we allow it to have this depth. I would also say performance is useful for challenging a creature. Whereas persuasion could be used to lure someone, performance can be used to issue grand, attention-getting challenges and really make them foul. Dramatics and the attention of others can definitely play a role in pressuring a target into a challenge. This is you doing that gladiator thing where you sort of like maybe slap someone on the back of the head like with the flat of your sword and sort of just like wave your arms at the crowd or something and it becomes a duel between the two of you guys. You can also use performance to distract a foe beyond the persuasion aspect of it. Let's say you're making yourself appear grander and a much more appealing target than your ally who has taken quite a few hits and they look close to death maybe you can make yourself a higher priority target so that that person close to death doesn't take that fatal blow okay i can see that there's no mechanic specifically for distracting a creature but i think that maybe a wisdom save or a contested insight check against your performance could sort of determine whether or not that creature gets distracted by you it's probably up to the dm to determine what sort of effects that confers whether that's disadvantage on attack rolls or ability checks or so on the unearthed arcana skill feed for this allows you to grant disadvantage to creatures if they try to focus on anything other than your performance but i believe this only applies to perception and investigation checks and i'd like to see this have a little bit more application in combat maybe disadvantage on an attack roll or something like that and I'm not so sure that this action should require a feat investment. I feel like putting on a performance mid-combat is something anyone proficient in performance should be able to do. So how do we use performance for mobility? I would say if you prove your skills at performing, you can become part of a traveling act that also does adventuring on the side. Okay, so use your performance skills to actually travel. I would also say that you could blend in under observation or hide in plain sight through the use of your acting skills. It's sort of like deception and stealth through acting rather than through words or hiding. So something like acting calm and just looking like you belong is a powerful tool for avoiding detection. You might not be actively trying to deceive any particular person, just acting in a way as to avoid suspicion. This is kind of what you were talking about earlier. Deceptive behavior is a very weird space for deception and performance, since deception covers behavior and performance covers acting, which is inherently deceptive. We'll get into this a little more when we discuss performance and the use of disguises. But for that matter, combining performance with the disguise kit sort of unlocks the disguise kit for constant use, uh, which is great for your mobility in terms of getting places. 
Oh yeah, pretending to be someone else to get their access, like we've kind of mentioned before, is mm-hmm. great. And deception will play a role in there when you're using that, but just looking the part can help you avoid a lot of conversations. And then I would say the deception part plays in if you're under closer scrutiny or something like that. Yeah, or or if you do get engaged with somebody and you do have to speak to them, you know. But otherwise, if you just look like you're doing your job or something, they may pay you no mind. Absolutely. So what about the utility applications of performance? Well, you can make money using performance, you know. The higher your roll, the more money you'll make, let's say, if you're talking straight numbers. Generally the rule that I like to apply to are performance checks. Okay, so actually performing in exchange for, like, donations or that sort of thing. Absolutely. You have your loot case out in front of you or a hat to collect money while you play your instrument or that kind of thing. Okay, yeah, that's a great way to make some money using this skill. I talked earlier a little bit about how performance can be used to garner interest. If you can create content that delights others and draws their attention, especially if verbal skills like those used in storytelling fall under performance, then it's a small leap to suggest that this ability can be used to make a topic seem interesting to an audience. Making something sound interesting to an NPC is an extremely powerful tool. Make a performance check mid-conversation to really hook the interest of the person you're talking to. This is very much an ability to hype skill. You want this when interacting with people you want something from. Make yourself, your allies, or something seem grand or bombastic. You can also build hype for an event, such as your own performance, or direct a group. Getting people to go somewhere is a very useful tool as well that allows players to create scenes. You need to get a lot of people together? Spend the day hyping an event around town, spreading the word and making it seem like the place to be. This is especially useful for your allies who may not have invested in performance but want to be able to create scenes or events that require crowds, such as a party, a contest, or other roleplay. In this sense, performance is fantastic for supporting the roleplay of others, hyping it up, making sure it's received the way you want, or even enabling their scenes to happen in the first place. We touched on group communication a little bit. These are going to be things like drawing the attention of or directing a crowd, effectively getting a message across to a large group, or evoking an emotional response out of a group based on your performance. Should we make a distinction between changing someone's mind and moving someone to change their own mind based on your performance? Essentially, if you present a situation in a framed manner that is intended to influence an opinion towards, you know, one way or the other, is that persuasion or performance? Uh, That's an interesting question. I would say it depends on how seriously you're trying to take the effect if you're trying to make someone be perceived as less serious than they actually are then i might do performance but if you're trying to make someone frightening seem like someone lovable or that kind of thing i would say that might fall under persuasion or possibly even deception depending on what you're actually trying to convey Mm -hmm. i guess what i'm trying to say is like if you're making someone who's like a bad guy out to be a bad guy and you're really playing it up with performance Can that have any persuasive capability? Or does that dip into persuasion? I might say a good performance check might give advantage on the persuasion check following after to get people to truly believe what you're saying. Okay, I like that a lot. So you can sort of use your performance to reinforce your your intimidation or your persuasion checks. I like that a lot because you're sort of hyping it up. So in this way, performance is a sort of support skill for the other charisma skills. 
That's that's awesome. That's a great way to like combine your skills. Voice, speech, and mannerism alteration. This is arguably deception because deception does cover little mannerisms and behavior and something like that. But I also feel that this falls very strongly under the scope of acting and storytelling. Like, especially if you're a DM who engages in voice acting, you know there's a performance aspect to adjusting your voice. It's not just like a deceptive skill that you have. I feel like if somebody was really good at deception, I would let them adjust their voice. And if they were really good at performance, I would probably let them do it too because it's such a close gray area Absolutely. here. Another extremely useful application of performance, throwing your voice. This is useful for throwing off pursuers, creating distractions and confusion, saying something without it being traced back to you or blaming others for it, pretending you're being called elsewhere, or giving voices to illusions which can serve to validate them. Throwing your voice is amazing. This is one of the most common uses for performance at my table, just oh, because absolutely. you can do so much with it. Illusions, just a sort of a quick little niche thing. You can convincingly interact with an illusion. Again, deceptive behavior can be chalked up to either deception or performance, and we'll get into that later. So how do we use performance for roleplay? I would use performance to basically make any scene more entertaining, more of a flourish to whatever is going on. Right, make it more interesting. Yeah, more interesting, more dramatic, more comedic, anything of that nature. Mm. If you're trying to play up certain aspects of what you're doing, then you would definitely be using performance. Oh yeah, and the nature of that flourish that you're talking about? can really lean heavily into how you roleplay your character. Whether it's like a sort of like violent flourish or something a little more comical, like we said, like a toss of the hair or something like that. I would say that a great use that I sort of mentioned earlier is building and expanding your reputation. When it comes to storytelling and making yourself interesting, performance is the skill to do it. That means that this is the skill you'll use to build that reputation whenever you're in a tavern or a bar, or maybe you're just singing stories of your exploits around town. I think that to some extent, an intimidating reputation might do the work automatically for you just because people might warn each other. And this skill can certainly supplement that. But if people aren't afraid of you and like actively talking about you for that matter, this would be the way to boast about your heroic deeds and so on and really get that out there. There's no formal system for tracking your reputation, but this is something that sort of puts the ball in the DM's court and gives them something to work with long term. In addition to that, there is, of course, performing, song, dance, storytelling, or some other form of artistic expression. This is the most obvious use of this skill, put on a performance. Note that instruments are actually a tool proficiency, so while performance might be used for your voice, it would not be for musical instruments. That's an interesting delineation because previous editions, you had to take specific performance skills for specific items and or things you would try and perform as far as acting or performing on the lute or even performing any kind of singing piece. You had to take a special type of performance for each instance that you were trying to perform. Okay, so that's kind of what the tool proficiencies are because you kind of get locked in when you choose your tool proficiency. So like, I'm only going to be good at guitars or I'm only going to be good at drums, something like that. Absolutely. So they still kind of do that, but it's done through your background instead, you know, unless you get tool proficiencies other ways. In general, I would say that this is a skill for a player that wants to push story, help other players engage with the game, and create change in their local area. Reflavoring performance is almost kind of redundant because the nature of the performance is already subject to whatever flavor you give it. 
So I don't know if there's any point in exploring a reflavoring section with this one here. I agree. Sweet. Long pause. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> So just general notes about performance. I feel like performance is actually more useful than intimidation, despite all the use it never gets by your average player. I think this has a lot to do with people not knowing where they can apply this skill, in large part due to the poor player's handbook description. But this skill is packed with hidden dimension. Mass communication, leadership, scene creation, acting and vocal skills, building interest, reputation management, disguise use, which we'll discuss a little more in the homebrew section. And I've also noticed that skill overlap occurs when you mash words together. We talked about the questionable ground when it came to persuasive performances, or rather the presenting of framed information, or whether intimidating performances could actually evoke fear, or if that was more intimidation's domain. So here's a sort of final thought for performance here. If performance can be used for leadership, would intimidation or performance be used to inspire awe in one's followers? I would say awe would go under performance because they may be in awe of your capability of violence, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're afraid of you for that ability because you won't be using it on them. Okay. Note that there is a mechanic for being awestruck, and I believe it's in the Draconic Ancestry Sorcerer. So jumping into charisma overall, we have a lot to talk about here. Let's talk about the disguise kit and the forgery kit a little bit. I would say those two toolkits are vital to the deception skill as a whole. Oh yeah, definitely, man. Just that forgery kit, the things you can get away with if you're really willing to get into the roleplay and look for things like deeds to just acquire a base for yourself, a fortification or something like that, a base of operations. And we've already discussed how useful disguises are for gaining access, getting around, that sort of thing. We'll talk about these a little bit more at length in a toolkit podcast, but keep in mind that these are open-ended and extremely applicable to your charisma skills. Let's talk about the friend's cantrip. The friend's cantrip allows you to buff yourself for a minute and you get advantage on all of your charisma checks, including intimidation. Strange. <laughs> strangely, <laughs> strangely enough. And then at the end of that, the creature knows that you buffed yourself and used magic to influence them, which is kind of a weird... Yeah, that, that, that's weird, kind of strange. Yeah, it's a little strange. I personally have adjusted this so that it's just a wisdom save. And if they fail that wisdom save, your words have this sort of alluring effect to them, sort of fae-like enchanting effect to your just the way you speak or something like that. And just for my table, I adjusted the component of them automatically being salty about it and instead imposed the condition that you have to touch them without them noticing you touching them. So they have to not be paying attention to you at the moment that you touch them in order to cast the spell, but after that you're good to go. I mostly did this because only our Faelok was really going to have access to this and it just sort of made sense with the flavor of Fey magic in our game. It also encouraged him to sort of sneak around and be careful about the way his Faelok approached characters. Other noteworthy cantrips, prestidigitation and minor illusion are wonderful for cleanliness and hygiene, scent and breath. I would allow minor disguise effects, like putting a mustache on someone, that kind of thing. I would make the mustache very apparently fake, though, like almost like the, the Groucho glasses. 
kind of prestidigitation. I would use minor illusion more for those disguise effects. Prestidigitation's more useful for conjuring props or for sensory illusions, such as adding warmth to flames or filling the air with the scent of blood. If it's an illusion, I would probably have the disguise effect be the DC of the caster's spell save. That just makes sense to me. If they're investigating for an illusion, which we'll actually get into here in a bit. Also very useful for sabotaging others or starting fires and providing distractions or interruptions. Thaumaturgy is also very useful for voice amplification. Thaumaturgy and Minor Illusion can be used to throw or project your voice across a distance. Maybe unlike performance, you're projecting your voice 30 feet out, something like that. Great for taking attention off of you. Note that Prestidigitation, Thaumaturgy, and Druidcraft can maintain multiple effects, which, like Minor Illusion, can stack and do not require the use of concentration. Guidance can be used on yourself to buff your social roles. Enhance Ability can be used on Charisma to give yourself advantage on all of your social roles. Hex and Bestow Curse can debuff a target's wisdom, causing disadvantage to contest your social roles with insight or wisdom saves. Some noteworthy feats regarding Charisma. The Actor Feat. Extremely powerful, in my opinion one of the most powerful feats in the game due to the ability to powerfully influence almost any situation and the overall plot. To me, this brushes shoulders with Lucky because of what you can do with it. It enables an entire gameplay style. This feat is straight up better in the hands of a player with social skills or lying capability who can think of ways to use it on the fly. This feat also gives some cushion to players who are more shy and maybe less deceptive or have difficulty thinking on their feet because it gives you advantage. And it grants not just a mimicry mechanic where you're able to imitate voices, but it grants the flavor ability of being able to perform believable voices and be skilled at doing whatever voice you need. So this feat, which just grants advantage on performance and deception checks to pass yourself off as another, is ridiculously overpowered for disguise use. And I would recommend this over the Unearthed Arcana Toolkit feat, Master of Disguise, any day. This feat is extremely potent. The Skilled feat. This lets you add three skill proficiencies or toolkit proficiencies, but in this case, you can use it to add a whole social dimension to a character by choosing to invest entirely in social skills. So you can get the most usage out of persuasion and deception with your choice in either performance or intimidation, or at least that's what I would recommend. The Magic Initiate feat. You can use this to obtain cantrips and spells that can supplement your social game. Friends, Guidance, Prestidigitation, Thaumaturgy, or Minor Illusion, all excellent cantrips. Command, Charm Person, Bless, Bane, Hex, Comprehend Languages, Disguise Self, insanely powerful first level spells. The Observant Feat lets you read lips, useful for obtaining information from afar or that is not intended for you. The Linguist Feat grants extra languages and allows you to create and share ciphers with a DC equal to your proficiency plus your intelligence score. So depending on your intelligence, you could be passing around messages with really high DCs to decipher from a very early level. Okay, so those are some of the resources that the Player's Handbook gives us as far as feats go. Let's take a quick look at the backgrounds. We're mentioning the backgrounds in the Charisma Podcast because the ribbon abilities for backgrounds often have social applications. So first off, the charlatan. This is a Swiss army background. It's got five potent social perks in one. This gives us a false identity we can reference or use as needed. It gives us the ability to forge documents as long as we've seen it before. It gives us the ability to mimic handwriting. 
It gives us proficiencies in deception and sleight of hand and the disguise and forgery toolkits. And it's got roleplay heavy starting gear in that you start with a disguise kit, you start with money making tools of the con, such as weighted dice, and a set of expensive looking fine clothes. You can do a lot with that if you're clever. This is probably the most universally applicable social background as far as settings go, since the noble, acolyte, guild artisan, and soldier backgrounds grant social pull based on organizations. So some of the other backgrounds here, the entertainer, you can find work performing, you can provide housing for the party, it makes you a local celebrity after a performance, and we're looking at proficiencies in acrobatics, performance, a disguise kit, and a musical instrument. Guild Artisan gives you some oomph and pull as a respected member of a guild of your choosing, with the perks and services that come with it. I think this would be really cool reskinned as like a mafia artisan or something like that. Yeah. Proficiencies here are going to be insight and persuasion, which are very good, and a choice of artisan's tools, uh, which includes the alchemy kit, if I'm not mistaken. Very nice, so if you want to do a little crafting there, you have that option. It also gives you the choice of any language. The folk hero background is kind of weird because it doesn't actually give you any social proficiencies, but the background ability makes you a local celebrity with more emphasis than the entertainer background. This is very vague, and what that actually means is probably going to have a lot to do with how much you roleplay that and how much your DM leans into it. The soldier grants social pull through military rank and grants proficiency in athletics and intimidation, among other things that aren't relevant. The acolyte grants social pull through religion, grants any two languages. In addition to other stuff, the sage grants any two languages. And that's basically going to wrap it up on like most useful to like least benefits. Okay, so let's take a quick look at some of the classes and what they can offer for us. A one level dip into rogue can get you four skills and two expertises for your proficiencies at first level. This is a must have for social builds because it's crazy potent from the start. A one level dip into divine soul sorcerer can get you access to many cantrips and spells with potent social applications because it unlocks the cleric tree for you as well at level one, in addition to getting you a cleric spell that can benefit your social game. Assassins get the benefit of voice mimicry and false backgrounds at higher levels. Conquest paladins get fear auras. Samurai fighters can add their wisdom and charisma modifiers to their persuasion rules. A recent Unearthed Arcana added a fighter maneuver that lets you add a bonus to certain social rules as well. Pretty handy. Glamour bards get lots of stuff but especially enthralling performance, which is once per short rest. I'm going to read this off real quick. Humanoids within 60 feet of you who watched and listened to all of your performance, up to a number equal to your charisma modifier, must succeed a wisdom save or be charmed by you. While charmed in this way, the target idolizes you, it speaks glowingly of you to anyone who talks to it, and it hinders anyone who opposes you, although it avoids violence unless it was already inclined to fight on your behalf. This effect ends on a target after one hour. If it takes any damage, if you attack it, or if it witnesses you attacking or damaging any of its buddies. If the target succeeds on its save, it has no idea that you tried to charm it. So this is the cult leader ability that just makes people just, man, that guy he's just great like i just want to like do so much to help this guy you know he's he's just the best he's the best you know what can we say so yes there's that very potent it's very open-ended so what you can do with this probably depends on how you utilize these people while they're charmed i think there's a lot you can do here it's just it depends on what you do so warlocks let's talk about the mask of many faces and misty visions invocations this is early level access to both uh you're looking at level two i believe when you get your invocations 
So for Mask of Many Faces, this is overpowered for trickery, thievery, and the shedding of consequences. Because what you're basically able to do is use Disguise Self at will. That seems as incredibly As many powerful. times as you want. There's no limit. You do it whenever you want. So you always look like someone else. If you like, yeah. We homebrew at will abilities that affect yourself as being like an atmospheric because we wanted to be able to like really give that player, which in this case was me, the ability to just change appearances on the fly. And we basically learned that you can do so much with this. Everyone you meet is someone you could potentially turn into. Every NPC out there is fair game. And anytime you do something, and we talked about this like for sleight of hand, anytime you like steal something, get in trouble, something like that, you can just ditch that face and it's gone. And the consequences are generally gone unless people know you can do this. If you have Mask of Many Faces, don't let anyone know you can change your identity because that will nerf your ability to do it on the fly. If everyone's like, oh yeah, a shapeshifter, well that must have been so-and-so, then, <laughs> then you're basically out of luck there. And that kind of goes back to that anonymity thing I was talking about before. With Misty Visions, illusions go hand in hand with social skills because you can use social skills to convince people to believe what they witnessed. Misty Visions grants silent image at will without the spell components. It's just written in, no spell components there. It's a 60 foot range and fills up to a 15 foot cube and it's useful for creating NPCs that aren't real, especially when used with cantrips or performance to throw voices to make your illusions into interactable characters. If you have the actor feat, you have advantage to create these voices and pass them off. If you need to, you can even make an illusion of yourself while you're disguised as someone else, thereby proving that you couldn't be in your disguise. <laughs> this can actually be used to combat metagaming when a player doesn't want to play along because you are tricking their character into believing something that the player knows isn't true. So they have to play along because that's what their character would believe. Another interesting use for Silent Image is that you can use it to reinforce your disguise. I was disguised as a king once and created an escort of knights to follow me and make my guys more believable. A quick homebrew note here. In our game, we allow Silent Image to affect the entirety of a space up to a 15-foot cube, and therefore multiple movable illusions can be created within that space, rather than a single object which fills up to 15 feet. This opens up options such as conjuring concealment while operating the illusion, conjuring up a false posse to escort you, or otherwise creating multiple illusions within the space of the spell. One caveat for this is that if a creature moves into your illusion and therefore realizes the illusion is an illusion, all components of the image immediately vanish for that creature, as per the spell. This means you can keep your cons going as long as you don't let anything touch your illusion. The smaller the perimeter, the more maneuverable the illusion. This also means that if you cast an illusion inside someone's space, they don't see it and can see out from within it. And lastly, going back to our charisma notes, don't forget about the insight skill. It's the only social skill that isn't in charisma, and that's because it's based on intuition rather than influence. You can lie, coerce, and persuade others all you like, but you're never going to know who's lying, who to trust, or what they're thinking without insight. Improving real-life communication skills can help your game, given the way charisma roles are done. Check out YouTube videos, podcasts, books, etc. on being charismatic, deceptive, etc. And with that, let's take a look at some of our homebrew.
There's some fun stuff from uh, 3.5 you can possibly add for someone that wants to invest in NPC followers. It's a feat called leadership. All it requires is level six, and basically you gain a reputation that attracts followers who seek you out. You can basically become a guild master or a hero of a small group and lead an army into battle. Okay, and this is through a feat? Yes, absolutely. Uh, You get a leadership score that changes as your level changes and as certain events happen in your life. Uh, Say you do something of great renown that would give you more leadership points in this skill. Interesting. So it sort of rewards roleplay as well. Absolutely. Wow, I actually really like that. It's It's a great way of sort of guaranteeing that you get a follower in the game. I wonder if if you stacked that with like the noble background, if you would also have like the knight who follows you plus your whoever followers you acquire. As far, I mean, those are two separate investments, so I don't see how that wouldn't stack together if you didn't want to homebrew this leadership feat into the game. I actually really like that because it sounds like it's just asking you to role play out this relationship and rewards you for doing like heroic deeds. Oh, absolutely. And it does actually punish you as well for being abusive to your NPCs. And that was called the leadership feat? The leadership feat. I like that. And uh, I do want to talk a little bit about the top end of this uh, feat because it does get fairly silly. At 25 leadership score or higher, you have your level 17 cohort, which is any class of your choice. On top of that, you get 135 level 1 characters. These are all stronger than your average townsperson. 13 level 2 followers. 7 level 3 followers. 4 level 4 followers. 2 level 5 followers. And 2 level 6 followers. This is dependent on your leadership score, which would be at 25. And you achieve that with your level plus your charisma modifier. This is a small army with very strong generals that basically helps you do whatever you need to get done. Damn, that's crazy. It definitely adds a lot more power to your party with just a simple feat. I like that. You're basically swapping a feat investment for a little bit of narrative control and bringing in that extra character that you're encouraged to roleplay with. Absolutely. Okay, so performance disguises and acting to avoid suspicion. This is not so much homebrew as it is our table's procedure for using both deception and performance when acting in character or using disguises, based on our interpretation of the rules. I think it's useful because I find it realistic and it gives performance a very important role in disguise encounters. So let's first go off on a tangent about determining the use of an illusion or disguise. I'm talking about when you're using the disguise self-spell or are wearing a disguise and whether another creature can notice those falsehoods. Disguises are very powerful when combined with adept social skills, and this comes back around to performance and deception, so bear with me. The wording of the silent image spell suggests an order of operations regarding illusions and seeing through them, and I think they function very nicely for disguises as well, seeing as disguises are a sort of material illusion. It reads, A creature that uses its action to examine the image can determine that it's an illusion with a successful investigation check against your spell save DC. If a creature discerns the illusion for what it is, the creature can see through the image. According to this wording, a creature can investigate an illusion to discern it to be an illusion, meaning they are checking specifically to determine whether they're looking at an illusion. 
In the case of a material disguise, the assassin's imposter feature tells us this. Your ruse is indiscernible to the casual observer. If a wary creature suspects something is amiss, you have advantage on any deception check you make to avoid detection. This clarifies for us that if a creature is making an investigation check to determine whether you're disguised, it's opposed by deception. So in either case, we now know that determining an illusion or disguise for what it is is a deception check contested by investigation. Now an investigation check, as opposed to a perception check, means that you're actively searching for illusions with intent, rather than passively noticing an illusion by chance. This suggests that in order to make this search, there first needs to be a logical suspicion that what you're looking at may not be the case. Like, hey, this wall's not supposed to be here. Or, I think I saw him adjusting his mustache. So we have a logical structure in which there must first be a reason for suspicion, and only then can there be a contested investigation check. So what's the point? Why is this important? It means that if a creature initially succeeds a deception check to pass as the person they're disguised as, onlookers have no further reason to suspect the presence of a disguise unless provided one. Essentially, if you already believe I am who I am and I do something strange, it's reasonable to first think that I'm acting strangely and not myself, rather than suddenly suspecting I'm a completely different person in disguise. I mean, it sounds like an extreme jump in logic anyways, right? How common are disguises anyways? How weird would it be if you went to work and like your boss wasn't your boss, but just like a guy like in disguise? That never happens, right? So how do we navigate this? When you're in disguise and say or do the wrong thing, there is a need for a gradient of suspicion to be represented before the transition between believing you are who you are and suddenly investigating specifically for a disguise takes place. We'll come back to this. Let's take a look at the wording of disguise self. You make yourself, including your clothing, armor, weapons, or other belongings on your person, look different until the spell ends or you use an action to dismiss it. You can seem one foot shorter, taller, appear to be thin, fat, or in between. You can't change your body type, so you must adopt a form that has the same basic arrangement of limbs. Otherwise, the extent of the illusion is up to you. What does that mean, the extent of the illusion is up to you? Does this mean I can mimic someone's appearance flawlessly if I've taken a good enough look at them? Now, it's one thing to look like an anonymous person, but it's another to convincingly seem like a person that is well known to others. If you're mimicking someone other people are familiar with, that means shifting your voice, speech patterns, temperament, posture, habits, quirks, etc. to match their expectations. This depth of deception goes beyond a momentary trick of information. It's not saying, I'm someone's dad, it's saying, I'm your dad, and getting you to believe it when I don't know you're looking. So we're talking about acting skills. So this is where we get into the weird territory between deception and performance when it comes to using one's acting skills to deceive, and why the element of suspicion plays an important role. The actor feat has a line which grants advantage to both deception and performance roles to pass yourself off as another, but it is never defined in the player's handbook how a performance role is used in this way, other than the player's handbook description which tells us that acting skills fall under the purview of performance. Here's how we interpret that. Let's say you're posing as a certain noble at a court ball, and while you're socializing with other nobles, a cousin of the person you're posing as is watching your interactions carefully from afar. Are you making deception checks for this? Deception checks that you're making while having a non-deceptive conversation with someone else. 
For me, deceptive performances and this ability to act in character speaks to the performance skill and its inclusion in the actor feed. In this situation, I would have this player roll performance against the cousin's insight to determine whether that player is passively able to avoid the suspicion of that cousin. That seems fair. Yeah. So I would especially do this if the person the player is posing as has distinct or pronounced characteristics, such as speech pattern, stride, posture, authority, etc., that the character would have to maintain at length. Because just because you're a good liar, it doesn't mean you're a good actor. And this goes back to why performance is useful if you're in disguise, but accidentally speak or act out of character or fumble a couple of your deception checks. If you accumulate suspicion as a consequence of your actions, the ability to seem like you really are the person you're posing as becomes critical. When suspicion arises, you can passively contest those suspicious creatures' insight checks with a performance check. If you fail this, it gives them a valid reason to suspect you aren't who you claim to be and therefore make an investigation check. So that's our gradient of suspicion there. That's them going from like, oh, he's just being weird to like, wait, that might be a disguise, you know, like, is this somebody else? A good example of this, and a lesson for DMs on how to combat disguise, is that I was once masquerading as a recently deceased king in a campaign my cousin ran, and I was addressing my court to establish new laws. My cousin cleverly played the court's familiarity against me, and I expressed sorrow at the death of the king's son, not knowing the king actually disliked his son. He had the court roll insight against my performance, seeing as I hadn't made a deceptive statement, to determine whether this was genuinely the king acting out of character this way, and even though my min-max social build carried me through, it was still obviously extremely unusual to the court. And note that a successful role to avoid disguise suspicion does not explain away or make people forget the odd thing you just did in character. I can honestly say that winning against those suspicion roles does not feel good. It feels awful because you realize immediately by the audience's response that you've said something wrong and have to do some clever backpedaling. I got through that high-risk, high-reward social encounter, but it was extremely stressful. Even nailing my roles as a player, I was sweating bullets trying to think on my feet, and I got the hell out of there as soon as I could. Disguised encounters can be extremely engaging and nerve-wracking. So in this situation, we can see performance's crucial role in staving off suspicion that would have gotten me in extreme amounts of trouble. So... To recap, when you first attempt to pass yourself off, use deception because you're performing the act of passing as your disguise. Once they believe it, the possibility of disguise is out of mind and that deception is over. After that, we use performance to seem genuine and roll against their insight when we act out of character or say something odd to avoid any suspicion and prevent those investigation checks from happening. If they do suspect something is amiss and decide to investigate you for a disguise, use deception to pass yourself off again. If they fail, they don't detect a disguise and have to rationalize that you're just behaving notably oddly. They're not going to forget it, but they have no other explanation. So as a rule of thumb, if you tell a lie or perform an action that is actively to deceive an audience you're engaged with, that is deception. If they're rolling insight to assess your behavior when you're not making an immediate deception, that is performance, because remembering to act in character is an acting skill. Through acting to avoid suspicion, performance quietly becomes deception's little brother. You can say you're someone with deception, but really appear to be someone with performance. This is why the actor feat gives advantage to both skill checks. It's weird that the designers acknowledge this role for performance in this feat, because we wouldn't have to figure out our own procedure for disguise usage if they had clarified this. Even the Xanathar's Guide to Everything section on the disguise kit doesn't clarify how disguises are used. If you're interested in disguises, we'll cover them more extensively in the Toolkits and Crafting podcast down the road. 
Okay. So with all of this said, final thoughts on charisma skills. I will say I feel kind of iffy about using charisma skills against other players. I don't like to do it because I feel that generally it takes player choice away. Kind of robs them of that autonomy. Yeah, but it can also lead to very funny and interesting roleplay opportunities. We experienced recently a certain character deceived my character into believing they were a person of authority for the entire length of the game. Paz. That's right. So we had a rogue named Paz who was masquerading as a cop from a neighboring city. And uh, managed to deceive the paladin into believing he was who he said he was. When he did that, I had no further reason to suspect that he wasn't who he said he was. So he basically had that disguise the entirety of the game that we played. But to be fair, even though you were strong-armed a little bit and initially like not, not knowing, that was only the case initially. He did things later that were out of character, like picking a lock. He pulled yeah. out a, a lockpick <laughs> and picked a lock right in front of you. And, and like climbing a rope later in a very unusual, like a very like burglar kind of way because he was a thief and I had you roll insight on those to see what was up with that but he just nailed it every time I feel like I kind of botched those insight rolls a bit which is why I was like well he just seems like an excessively skilled yeah so specialist I, I feel there has to be an element of trust when it comes to removing player autonomy and you were granted opportunities that were realistic at later points to sort of get that back yeah when it comes to npcs doing this to players and not just players doing it to other players i don't roll persuasion for persuasive characters i just try to present an argument that is persuasive and try to be persuasive myself when conveying the information to the players for npcs deceiving the players i will deceive the players but it's usually up to the players to catch it and ask to roll for insight unless it's a detail i want them to catch in which case i may just ask them for an insight roll and then not fill them in if they fail it and for intimidation there are forces that can and should intimidate the players in this case it's not my job as the dm to bully anyone but to make sure that it's clear to everyone that a character can and will make good on their intimidations. For instance, if Mazun the Witch Hunter is coming after our Faelok and says he's going to catch his witch before sunset, our Faelok knows she'd better be paranoid because Mazun doesn't fuck around and will actually try to get the jump on her and kill her. In this case, intimidations like these can be logically reinforced by giving the players a strong sense of who a character is and what they're capable of. If a player wants to roll insight on one of these threats, like this, I might point out any practical issues an NPC might have in carrying out those threats. Like yes, Mazun said he's going to try and kill you, but you know he's been poisoned and will have to deal with that before getting around to you. So you'll most likely know that you have some time before he's going to make an attempt. Setting precedents or having occasional run-ins with repeating characters are great for this. Any other final thoughts? I feel like we've pretty well covered charisma and all of the various uses for it. Okay. Jeremy Crawford mentioned in a Todd Krennic interview that the social skills have very few rules by design, and that open-endedness was intended to provide flexibility. However, I think the lack of clarity during certain interactions can be confusing, with rulings and expectations inconsistent amongst DMs. I also think a poor player's handbook description robs performance of a role in social encounters outside of entertainment, but that it can be one of the more useful social skills. That's going to wrap it up for Charisma Skills and our Skill Deep Dive series. Join us next time on Ad Proficiency when we do a series overview and talk about our gripes, what we feel is lacking in the game, and debate certain points based on what we learned.